Okay, guys, big breaking news we're going to discuss on the podcast today. What's the, Which what's, news? What's the big congestion news? pricing just got approved? Congestion pricing debate has been brewing for years, but now it is set to become a reality for drivers coming into Manhattan. The Federal Highway Administration clearing the way for the city to implement this controversial plan. CBS 2's Dick Brennan here now with reaction, and it's hot tonight, Dick. It sure is, Maurice. This is the final hurdle that will allow the MTA to begin its first in the nation congestion pricing plan, charging drivers a fee when they go below 60th Street. The MTA says it will use the money to fund its capital plan. This New York, why I gotta pay more? Everything is going up. Talk to people coming off the West Side Highway just below 60th Street and you won't find too many fans of congestion pricing. I can't believe it. Oh, heck no. And I live right here. Yeah. Well, uh, Aaron, I, I'm totally shocked that drivers coming off the West Side <laughs> Highway are opposed to paying an additional fee to enter Manhattan. That is shocking. Breaking news. Right? I'm completely shocked that this is happening because congestion pricing was approved in 2008. This has been going on for 16 years. Yeah, I think that that this between the three of us, we've we've had several children and you know like what's, my what's daughter happened? was born in 2009 <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. my kid was born when this started and now he could get his driver's license there you go the cycle of life the circle of life hello and welcome to the war on cars i'm aaron napperstack and it's hot tonight, Doug and Sarah. <laughs> it sure is. Aaron, I, I just don't think it was very fair of you to charge me $9 to come into the studio today. <laughs> <laughs> it is kind of crowded in here. So New York City is getting set to launch a major new weapon in the war on cars. I, I don't know. if I don't know. Is, is, that, is that appropriate? Do we want to talk about the warlike language that I'm always using. Yeah, <laughs> it's not. A, it's not a new weapon. It has been deployed in the uh, Pacific and European theaters of war. One might say. Well, this is an actual. This is literally a Manhattan project. Well, what's <laughs> happening right now? It's just. It's just congestion pricing took a lot longer to develop than the atomic bomb. That's all. <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> some things. Easy. Some things are truly complicated. So New York City's congestion pricing plan has been slogging its way through city, state, and federal government for 16 years now. Some would even argue it's taken longer, like people started talking about this in the early 70s. But the Federal Highway Administration finally gave the green light after producing something like 4,000 pages of environmental review. They said that uh, New York City can finally implement this congestion pricing plan that it's been working on for so long. So if all goes as planned, people driving cars and trucks into lower Manhattan will have to pay a fee uh, starting sometime in the spring of 2024. Uh, we have a guest here to talk about this with us. She argues that congestion pricing has the potential to be a very big deal, not just for New York City, but for cities all across North America. Our guest is Diana Lind. She is a writer and nationally recognized expert on urban policy from the Penn Institute for Urban Research in Philadelphia. And she writes a newsletter called First and Foremost. We will put a link in the show notes so you can subscribe. Diana Lind, welcome to The War on Cars. Thanks so much for having me. In your newsletter the other day, you argued that the launch of congestion pricing marks the beginning of a new era, and I'm quoting you here, the next 20 years will be the beginning of the end of the private car in cities. Is this it? Have we have we won the war on cars? 
Is it done? Is it over? No, no. Definitely haven't won the the war on cars, but we have started what I would say, like I wrote, you know, the beginning of the end of private cars in cities. There's going to be a lot of different ways in which congestion pricing sort of starts out as being perhaps about reducing congestion, maybe becomes also about reducing emissions. And eventually, I think where we'll get is reducing the numbers of private cars being used in cities. So I think that there's a trajectory there over the over the course of the next couple of years. And I think what congestion pricing can do is it can really start people thinking about pricing mobility, about um, you know the ways in which we are sort of dedicating space in our cities to cars or not anymore. And I think it will start a broader national discussion once people see what's happening in New York and start thinking about, well, if it's working in New York, how could something like this work in Philadelphia or Boston or Los Angeles? Um, and I think it will just open up a bigger conversation about um, who gets to own the streets, who gets to um, walk, bike, or, or drive in them. Okay, so that all sounds amazing. But before we can even talk about what might happen in the future, let's talk about what the plan is and how it's supposed to work. So my understanding is that the plan will be um, a congestion pricing zone that will run from 60th Street um, to the bottom of Manhattan, that you will have cars and taxis and trucks charged at various different rates once a day to enter that zone, that there will be some exemptions for lower income residents, for city workers, etc. But in general, this will work by having scanners and technology that are, um, you know, built into the streetscape that is going to scan your easy pass and um, from there charge you for entering the zone. And we should say that right now there's no specific fee that has been proposed, but the range is anywhere from $9 to $23. A lot of that might depend on time of day, type of vehicle, like you were saying. So the fee has not been set, but that should be coming soon. Right. And and the goal, what what the MTA and the, and the city is hoping for, is that congestion pricing will reduce car and truck traffic in lower Manhattan by something like 15 to 20%. So you would see a significant reduction of car and truck traffic in the congestion zone and ideally on the streets leading to it. The plan is supposed to raise about a billion dollars a year in new revenue. And those funds will be used to pay for all kinds of improvements for public transit capital improvements. And so also, of course, the expectation is that with fewer cars and trucks, you'll have safer streets, improved biking and walking, better transit, cleaner air, better quality of life. And better quality of life for drivers, people who do need to drive, will be able to drive with in, in, on streets that have less congestion on them, which would be great for them, too. Also would add in there uh, better for buses. So mm. buses are crawling at a really slow rate, something like less than seven miles per hour. So this could be a, a huge boon for the bus network. So it sounds great. Uh, why have we been talking about this since 2008? 
Now we uh, continue with other news today, starting it, with congestion pricing. Yeah, it's a border war. New Jersey politicians file a lawsuit to stop the MTA's congestion pricing plan, but it may be just a stalling tactic. The suit claims the feds didn't consider the environmental impact on New Jersey before giving congestion pricing the green light. CBS2 political reporter Marsha Kramer here now to explain. Marsha. Well, Dana and Dick, there are a lot of strong words used today about the MTA's controversial congestion pricing plan. Highway robbery, brazen money. Grab, but the legal action filed today was not based on high toll charges, but about the environmental cost to New Jersey residents. And the environmental cost is anathema to our shared obligation to protecting vulnerable communities oh, from hazardous Jesus. air quality. Unless they live in Jersey City and live next to the highway. To protect New Jerseyans. And because of the congestion tax, come next spring, trucks will be backed up here in North Jersey as far as the eye can see billowing cancer-causing pollution into the lungs of children in our communities. CBS2 video shows the crush of trucks and cars coming from North Jersey into the George Washington Bridge right now. Yeah. Right. Okay. That's right now. the congestion that we will be pricing environmental and thereby concern, reducing. Environmental concern is the last refuge of the NIMBY. It really is. Yeah. It's like these guys don't give a shit about the environment as it stands right now. There's nobody advocating for the communities by the Lincoln and Holland Tunnels or the George Washington Bridge, you know, saying that something has to be done to reduce the number of cars that are polluting the atmosphere right around the there. The same governor is literally about to spend $11 billion, $11 billion. to widen the highway they through Jersey They don't give a City. shit. There's no difference between these guys and the people who show up to a bike lane meeting and say, if you put the bike lane in there, I'm just going to be circling, looking for parking, and that's going to add to the emissions and heat the planet. They don't actually give a shit. Right. Yeah. The people you hear from in that clip, it's this sort of rogues gallery of the same people who have been opposing this stuff yeah. for on and on. It's for like decades. a Marvel Cinematic Universe <laughs> reboot, basically, of the Prospect Park West bike lane fight, for sure. Yeah. But let's remember, they lost that they, fight they did lose. and they are going to lose this one i hope well and also look you know like <laughs> it, it's all going to depend you gotta you gotta hope that this doesn't land before a judge who drives into manhattan every day but they're basically saying that uh you know the mta and albany didn't and the federal government didn't consider the environmental impacts on new jersey and that's just patent bullshit because they literally went practically to maryland to consider the environmental impacts on like Philadelphia traffic that this might have. Um, so that's just patently untrue. A 4,000-page environmental review considered, I mean, literally, if there was like a car on a boat in the Atlantic Ocean, they probably considered the environmental impacts. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. It's September, and that means back to school or back to the daily commute or just back to life in general after your summer vacation. Whatever you're getting back to this fall, you can stay dry when you're walking and cycling with Cleverhood. Cleverhood makes the best rain gear around, from the bright and colorful Rover rain cape to the stylish Urbanaut trench. And not only do the good folks at Cleverhood support us here at the War on Cars, but they also support all kinds of organizations working to make their communities safer, sustainable, and more equitable. Now through the end of September, Listeners of The War on Cars can save 15% on anything and everything in the Cleverhood store. Visit cleverhood.com slash waroncars and enter code FALLBACK at checkout. Again, 
That's cleverhood.com slash war on cars, coupon code fallback. So, Diana, we've waited 16 years to put this plan into action. What's a few more months, I guess, right? We're only in the midst of a massive climate crisis caused in large part because of all of our <laughs> the cars that are gridlocking our cities. But no, seriously, you, your um, assertion that this plan is going to be a big deal for other cities, it's potentially the beginning of the end of the private car in cities in general. Let's, let's dig into that a little bit. Why do you think this could change the fundamental relationship that cities have with cars? New York is very unique in terms of both the numbers of people that it has and the density that it has and its ability to kind of shun the car in favor of uh, public transit. Other U.S. cities don't really have that luxury. They don't have that infrastructure. But all of the American cities are grappling with some of these fundamental challenges that I think that congestion charging or just sort of a broader rethinking of how we're um, allowing cars into our downtowns and neighborhoods. Um, all of these cities are grappling with these kinds of similar issues, whether it's the number of delivery vehicles that are entering our cities um, and curb access. Those are things that are clogging downtowns. Um, they're creating a ton of traffic and a lot of the um, vehicles that are doing those deliveries are often running on diesel, so they're extra polluting. What I've seen, for example, is how the congestion um, pricing scheme in London really affected how other cities within Europe have thought about um, not just congestion charging, but particularly things like um, low emission zones. So um, London wasn't the first to create uh, low emission zones. Cities in Sweden were, but when London sort of created the first really large one um, in 2008, a lot of other cities have followed suit. So, you know, Paris, uh, Madrid, Lisbon, etc. Um, and there are more than 300 low emission zones um, across Europe, which are these um, restricted areas where only um, low emission vehicles can go. Um, and it's really been a way for these cities to kind of um, control how many cars are coming into their downtown, what kind of cars are coming to, into their downtown. And seeing how that has spread across Europe, I think it started to you know make me think, well, if we have a model in New York in, in the U.S., I bet a lot of other cities are going to start looking to congestion charging and think, how could we apply this to other places in the U.S.? This to me seems like one of the most interesting and potentially fruitful things about congestion pricing is that it creates a mechanism that can be used in a lot of different ways. And like you're talking about limiting types of vehicles, there are some of us who really don't think that enormous SUVs, for instance, are an appropriate vehicle to have in dense urban areas. And it seems like this would be a great way to get people, not, not only to give the city a mechanism that they can use to say, no, this vehicle costs more than this other vehicle to come in, or this vehicle isn't allowed to come in at all. But it it also will help to raise awareness among the public, I would think, the driving public of the, you know, the the impact that different vehicles have and maybe create a kind of norm like, oh yeah, man, I don't want to drive in in Joe's Suburban because then we're going to have to pay $23. Let's, you know, take a different kind of vehicle or, you know, so that seems like a really cool opportunity in a way. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's the possibility of just differentiating among the types of vehicles that um, cities could have, where those vehicles are allowed to go, how you price them, etc. And so there's, for example, a, a pilot in Santa Monica to have a low emission zone. It's a voluntary low emission zone that is partnering with delivery companies. So the idea here is that only zero emission delivery vehicles are allowed to have priority curb access. And it's sort of an interesting idea because then you say, okay, if you want to have curb access as a delivery provider, you have to be driving in on um, a zero emission car. And I think that's a really smart way for cities to start thinking about, we have these streets that people want to access, but we're giving everyone equal access to it. All you have to do is just drive around in circles till you can park there. Well, no, actually, maybe we could say what we want to do is we want to change um, what kinds of vehicles have access to this area because we value the air quality and we want to push people towards more sustainable um, modes of transportation. And hey, we could pick up some money for our transportation agency at the same time. So I think that's like the potential here is giving cities the opportunity to start to differentiate between like what kinds of vehicles they want to allow into their most kind of prized real estate. um, And then thinking about like how this could then in turn support the infrastructure that they really need funding for. I was thinking, zooming out a little bit, that this also um, eliminates or reduces the sunk cost fallacy of car ownership. And that is a huge, huge thing. You know, bus riders and subway riders have to think about how much they're spending every week on commuting. And especially for lower income people who might have reached the end of their budget, where 20, 30 bucks a week or more is a lot of money for them. That extra 275 that they're going to spend, they might think, I can't do that because that's a significant portion of my hourly wage. Now drivers will have to think, man, you know, this this cost this trip is going to cost me nine dollars or fifteen dollars or twenty three dollars, on top of parking, on top of the time it takes, and so they might reevaluate that. And I think that's a huge opportunity, not just for New York, but for everywhere, because drivers just don't think about once they've paid their monthly, you know, car payments or the down payment, they just stop thinking about how much it costs to operate their car for the most part. In a way, it's like a real paradigm shift. It's a total rethink of the way that we use cars. You know, the, the idea of the car has always been you have this this total freedom. Like I have my car so I can go wherever I want, whenever I want. And and I think that's, to me, the biggest deal of congestion pricing is we're saying, well, actually, no, we're like keeping track of all of the cars that are coming into this area. <laughs> And we're like, we're, we're, we're putting a price on them. We're like, you know, and we're also maybe even like looking at the type of car you're using and whether or not it's appropriate here. I just feel like that's, that's a very radical and different way of thinking about the car for Americans, at least. I think it's also a paradigm shift for city leaders to actually not prioritize the car. Um, so if, let's just say the, um, congestion pricing is really successful and it is rolled out just years after the city was brought to its knees by COVID and people were really questioning whether people are going to return to the city, but it's successful and people love it. And the it, part of the city that's part of the congestion zone becomes even more desirable. Um, I think that has a potential to be a really big paradigm shift for how city leaders think about cars in their cities, because in so many other 
parts of the country after COVID, the first thing was just like, let's get people back downtown, no matter what it costs, free parking for everybody, you know, figure out ways to get people downtown. There were many different ways in which free parking was really like trotted out, whether even to um, get people onto transit again and so forth. And so this is like a really big shift to say, um, actually, no, we're going to chart a different future where we're going to get people back downtown, but it's not going to be about you driving your car there. It's going to be about kind of prioritizing this experience of living in the city um, in a way that's going to make this like a healthy, greener and, and, and more pleasant experience for people who are even just, you know, tourists or day visitors. So I think that's a, another kind of paradigm shift. I, I mean, I wonder about how effectively you think that elected officials and others are conveying these positive messages to people. Because, frankly, <laughs> I am not seeing a whole lot of effective communication. And so when we talk about all these great positive effects that might happen and other people that might see this as a model, I, I don't know that I'm seeing the the communication aspect handled in a way that that is making me hopeful about that happening. So are you seeing good communication, mm. good good kind of PR on this? That's a good question. So I can't say that I'm as tuned in. I'm, I'm a native New Yorker, but I don't live there anymore. So I'm not as tuned into how local New York officials are kind of embracing this and saying this is something that we support and want to see um, happen. I've seen much more of that really on the advocacy side. And I also think that you know, one of the things that's really different about, say, how um, we think about where we are in climate change in the U.S. versus, let's just say, Europe, which has embraced, you know, many more of these low emission zones and, and more stringent um, focus on, you know, keeping cars out of their downtown areas is, you know, there's a just a different approach to climate change in the U.S., like much many fewer elected officials who even have that as part of their platform, not as strong of a kind of green party that say, you know, is running Paris right now. Um, so it's kind of hard to find the elected officials in the U.S. who are um, really kind of leading with the message of environmental issues about, um, you know, quality of life issues, things like that, as much as you could find a lot of elected officials who are just kind of at this point really preoccupied by things like, you know, crime and safety and picking up the litter and stuff like that. So I think you're hitting on a really important point, which is that uh, there's a lot of buy-in that needs to happen, both in terms of the public and in terms of um, elected officials who are going to kind of support this, because otherwise... Um, you know, and certainly there was a lot of controversy over congestion charging in, in London, but otherwise you could have in in, in New York like this really be a, a disastrous rollout. It's probably worth mentioning that right before Stockholm implemented their congestion pricing fee, uh, support was below 40 percent. And then within weeks of it being implemented, support went up to like 52 percent. And then years later, it was 70 uh, percent. So it, it, there's this what they call the political valley of death, which I know Streets Blog <laughs> yes. and others have covered that, you know, nobody really wants to go out on a limb and support this. Our own mayor, I think if it weren't already law, he would be against it 100 percent. He's been very reluctant to say wholly positive things about it. He keeps saying he has concerns. Um, Governor Hochul has been pretty um, 
pretty strong in her defense, saying congestion pricing is going to happen, sort of like in not so many words, like, suck it, New Jersey. It's going to happen. Well, and, and she was great. We should maybe play the clip of her at the announcement. I mean, she did a great She's been pretty out. good, yeah. I walk the streets of the city almost every day, and I see it. And I know the anxiety people have when you're at the intersection and cars are flying through and you can barely, and the delivery trucks are jammed up. They can't make their deliveries, and they're getting frustrated, and the cars behind them are all beeping because they can't get through. It is chaos. It is chaos. And think about the pedestrians just trying to get around the bicyclists, the delivery people. It is dangerous for them. But all this concentrated activity, the vehicles sitting there idling because they cannot move, and our buses that are not moving, it's also creating all this exhaust and emissions that our people are breathing. As I mentioned at the outset, we're more cognizant of what's going into our lungs these days, and we're experiencing the effects of the wildfires in Canada. What about the wildfires that are happening on our own streets right here coming out of the exhaust pipes from all these vehicles? Well, I mean, I think it's, you know, I think it's like everything that we see, and I, I can relate this to like city bike, the, the freak out as, as uh, you know, right now they're putting the tolling gantries up and the infrastructure is getting put in place. And that's, it reminds me very much of when the first docking stations went out for City Bike and people freaked the hell out. This is going to ruin the city. How are people going to make deliveries? No one's going to be able to access the curb. What about little old ladies who need to get to medical appointments? And you're seeing exactly the same thing happen with congestion pricing. It's a complete misread on how people get around New York City, especially. And nobody can see any benefits yet. So Not it's yet. like you just see the sort of this looming policy change, right? But that's what the valley of death is. It's like you don't see any benefits yet. And so it's like this moment where the opponents can kind of just scare the hell out it's of like everyone. It's like cars in Central Park. If you went right now to Central Park and said, hey, did you know that just like three, four years ago, we used to let cars come through here. Should we let them back? People would look at you like you were crazy. Speaking of that, you had an interesting test case of an implementation that was done not uh, intentionally uh, when you had part of the uh, part of the freeway system in your part of the world uh, failed spectacularly. And there were some interesting uh sort of non-repercussions from that. Is that right? I, I, I'd love yeah, to hear your yeah. perspective on that. Sure, yeah. Well, so when the uh, fuel tanker burst into flames and shut down I-95 and collapsed part of I-95 outside of Philadelphia, you know, everyone was really kind of convinced that this was going to be um, just terrible, that first of all, it was going to take months and months and months to be repaired, that this was going to be a true burden on people both getting in and out of Philadelphia, but also, you know, I-95 is a massive, you know, major highway um, along the East Coast. So it would mean causing great delays, particularly like commerce traveling up and down the highway. Um, yeah, that didn't end up really happening. And I think that certainly SEPTA, our transit agency, really stepped up. But um, there's so much redundancy to I-95 in terms of other ways that you can get around um, by not taking I-95 that really, you know, some of those detours were worked out okay. The main thing, though, is that they solved that problem really quickly. I think it was something like two weeks that they were able to build, rebuild that section. So that was kind of a, an infrastructure miracle. But I thought that you were going to say that um, Philadelphia had some experience with um, testing out not congestion charging, but we did do a um, a test case of pedestrianizing one of our streets, uh, mm. commercial 
um, corridor, Chestnut Street in Philadelphia. And that was a real failure. And I think that was sort of uh, one of the things that has made it really hard to kind of revisit this idea of pedestrianizing downtown Philadelphia, which is, you know, built on a, a very old grid. It has a lot of you know, buildings from the 19th century, it could easily work without cars. Um, But there's a lot of fear of pedestrianizing parts of the city ever again, because um, when we did try it, it it failed. And certainly in a lot of other um, cities around the country, those kind of pedestrian malls and their downtowns were not successful. One more thing about the Philly uh, I-95 collapse. I mean, that, you know, it wasn't so much a miracle, but Josh Shapiro, the governor, basically issued an emergency declaration that suspended all of the different rules and regulations that might make that project slow. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it's an interesting contrast to like this congestion pricing policy that's been like wending its way through 16 years of like processes, some of which are processes that we theoretically like, like environmental review. But with I-95, we just said, you know what, this is important. This is an emergency. We need to go get it done. If you have some you know, local rule or environmental regulation that's in the way, sorry, like it's an emergency, we're doing it. There's something there that we can take away as like, you know, we are in a variety of emergencies. We have an affordable housing emergency. We have a climate emergency, like name your emergency. We have a traffic congestion emergency. You know, there's something to be said for letting your elected representatives, as Doug was saying earlier, like just do their jobs. Go implement the thing that's going to solve the emergency, for Christ's sake. And not to get completely political, but all of this stuff is completely political. There is this idea with like, good on Josh Shapiro, like a Democrat getting shit done. Yes, and show not that scre- you could, government can do things. Government can do stuff and solve problems. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't just have to be railing about like, you know, personal health care decisions for trans children or like your books in your public public school are too woke. Like it can actually solve problems that affect people's lives yeah. and not deal with this culture war bullshit that the Republicans are always railing on. It's just too bad. The thing that we consider the emergency that really needs to get done is just building a redundant highway through Philadelphia. Yeah, basically. Through Philly, you know, yeah. <laughs> like we have Same the wrong emergency, but tear down the rest of the highway. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that is that's a part of the issue is that this is what we consider an emergency is a highway you know that it is an emergency when the highway goes out because so many americans would never have another way to get where they need to go um and and we're so reliant on highways so i think that's that kind of qualifies it and i think in a certain way everyone sort of cheered for the highway it's like almost this universal experience for americans whereas i think congestion pricing really starts to pit people's values against one another you know and and i think it sort of also can you know potentially pit certainly pits you know commuters against residents um and it can potentially pit some Manhattan residents against others or, you know, people who are in in the boroughs against Manhattanites. So I think that is also sort of a problem if it's not pitched in a way as sort of like, this is great for our city and our region overall. Yeah, I just keep thinking about like, maybe we should suggest that Phil Murphy should market his state as a high emission zone. And, you know, and and like he could be like, this is a high like I want, (laughs) you know, we're trying to like encourage congestion and emissions in New Jersey. And so we just want you to know, just like drive as much as you want. And like, 
well, we won't ever price it. And, and like, if we could get him to stand up there and say that, maybe, maybe. I mean, he's, he's essentially <laughs> trying to do that because he's trying to widen a highway through Jersey yeah. City. So, you know, all of these claims that he has about the lawsuit that will have negative environmental consequences for people in Bergen County and other counties in New Jersey, you can sort of say, I think you're not being truthful here because you are widening a highway that's going to have terrible effects on the people of Jersey City and other areas close by, um, which I think speaks to the political problem here, which is that drivers complain a lot. And the people who don't know what they have to gain are not easy to organize. You know, it's, it's hard to organize the tenants of an affordable housing project that hasn't been built yet. Um, and that's sort of what's going on with congestion pricing, I think, right now. Diana, in your piece, you you specifically mention a 20-year timeline. Like, you think this will be the beginning of a 20-year process. And that actually got me, I've been thinking a lot about time lately, <laughs> like, and how long advocacy and changes take. Where might we be in, like, 10 or 15 years? If this works, what could the vision look like? So my future is is both optimistic and a little bit dystopian because, you know, you have to go there. Um, I think that in the future, we're going to have, uh, I think we're going to have self-driving cars. I think we're going to have a lot more AI. I think we're going to have a lot more electric cars. And I think we're also going to have cities as playing this like very unique role of places of personal connection. I think that as the world becomes more AI-centric, the um, importance of personal connection and verifying truth and people and in-person experiences are going to become that much more valued. And cars, private cars are going to have less and less of a space for that. I also think that um, in a weird way, we're sort of, there's going to be more of this kind of um, day tourism um, in two cities. So as remote work kind of expands further and people perhaps live further from the city, they also then come more into the city for those personal connections and they're not going to be bringing their private vehicle in for that. So I see that as being sort of that 20 year horizon. I see, you know, a lot of different kinds of targets that we've set for things like the end of, you know, um, gas powered cars in 2035, 2040. Um, I see 20 years from now us being in a very different landscape, both in terms of how um, people are thinking about mobility and then also just in terms of how people are thinking about like what the role of cities um, are and, and cities being a place where, you know, you wanna be surrounded by people be in places where you can kind of live that best in person life and and cars have a very limited role in that. I'll give you an optimistic version of this. The the 60th street and below cordon that we're doing now was what was possible politically, right? Like ideally I think we would all love to see all of Manhattan become a congestion pricing zone. You know, Brooklyn is the fourth largest city in America. There's no reason why you shouldn't have to pay to move your car through downtown Brooklyn. Uh, so I think in my most optimistic version of this, we start with this 60th and below. It, it works really well. And then the city says, you know what, we can expand it. And then you have a little more ammunition because all the doom and gloom predictions of businesses are going to go under and, you know, Grammy's not going to be able to get to the hospital. None of that has come to fruition. And so it makes the political fight to expand it just a little easier, if not a lot easier. So that's sort of my optimistic, where are we in 15, 20 years vision? Can I do another optimistic thing, which is that I think that this could 
really stabilize the MTA financially, and it could become very obvious that, you know, that this kind of funding source makes a lot of sense, and then that making the MTA into the, you know, truly, truly world-class organization that it deserves to be, providing really superb public transit service, the likes of which you see in other countries, um, that that if we get that going, 10 years from now, the climate impacts are going to be so extreme and so obvious to everybody all the time that it's going to be a wonderful relief to be able to say, hey, we've got this world-class public transportation system in New York City and other places are going to be looking and clamoring for ways to have that where they are, even places that don't imagine it now. That's my fantasy optimistic vision. Good one. Well, Diana Lynn, thanks so much for joining us here at The War on Cars. It's been great to have you. It's been really fun to talk with you. That's it for this episode of The War on Cars. Thanks again to Diana Lynn for joining us. We will put a link to Diana's newsletter, first and foremost, in the show notes. If you like what we do on the podcast, join The War on Cars on Patreon. Go to thewaroncars.org, click support us, and enlist today. Membership starts at just $3 a month. You'll get access to exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free versions of regular episodes, and we'll even send you stickers. Speaking of which, we have a new top Patreon sponsor. We want to thank Parking Reform Network for joining The War on Cars. Go check out parkingreformnetwork.org. They are working to educate the public about the impact of parking policy on climate change, equity, housing, traffic, you name it, with an aim of accelerating the adoption of critical parking reforms through research, coalition building, and advocacy. They're really doing the hard work, and uh, we appreciate it. Thanks also to our other top Patreon sponsors, Charlie G of Human Powered Law in Portland, Oregon, the law office of Vaccaro and White in New York City, Virginia Baker, Martin Mignot, and Mark Headland. Thanks to our friends at Cleverhood for sponsoring this episode. This episode was recorded by Josh Wilcox at the Brooklyn Podcasting Studio. Our theme music is by Nathaniel Goodyear. I'm Doug Gordon. I'm Sarah Goodyear. I'm Aaron Napperstack, and this is The War on Cars. Now, the MTA called the suit baseless, pointing out that there was a 4,000-page environmental assessment that included input from New Jersey residents and officials. The Federal Highway Administration says it does not comment on pending litigation. Dana and Dick. Marsha, thank you. Thanks, Marsha. This is a First Alert Weather special report. Good afternoon. I'm meteorologist Vanessa Murdoch bringing you up to speed on our red alert in effect today and tomorrow. But today there's a little bit more to the mix. Dangerous heat persists today and tomorrow. It feels like 100 to 105 plus out there. Brick feels like 107 right now. This is the spot though that just moments ago was at 109. Sparta, Edison both feel like 99 as is White Plains. The heat index right now in the city at 98. And even looking at Long Island, if you recall,